as an industry, I think we're too embarrassed by what we do. Our job is to sell stuff and to grow our businesses. But as an industry, I think we tend to think that selling is a bit of a dirty word. And so we do all this beautiful work that, as you said, wins all kinds of awards, but it's so afraid of being seen as selling that it doesn't actually sell anything. And in turn, it doesn't move the needle for the business. And so I think that there's this fallacy that you can either sell something or you can do work that entertains people. And at Uber, we're really thinking that selling can be entertaining and entertainment can sell. Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how marketers can get smarter and stronger. I am Greg Stewart, the CEO of nonprofit MMA Global. And that voice you hear at the top is David Munkinson. He is the vice president of marketing at Uber. They don't formally use the CMO title, but he's really in charge of marketing worldwide over there. And before Uber, he worked across a range of marketing roles at BMW and Google. Now, today on Building Better CMOs, Dave and I are going to talk about changing the way people think and feel about Uber, what makes its marketing division uniquely intense, why marketers need to stop being embarrassed to sell, and so much more. This podcast is all about the challenges that marketers face and how to unlock the true power that marketing can have. We also look at what does real leadership look like and what do you most effectively do to drive growth today. David Morganson from Uber is going to tell us right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. This is Greg Stewart here with Building Better CMOs and David Morganson, VP of Marketing at Uber. Hi, David. How are you doing today? I'm good, Greg. It's Morganson, not Morganson, but other than that. Oh, did I? Oh, you know what's so funny about that? And we can leave that in, Eric, actually, by the way. My son's name is Morgan. Ah. And so it's funny. I was looking at your name earlier and I knew and I inserted an R without even thinking about it. Well, you're in good company. A lot of people make it Morganson. So I'm used to it. The Morganson. Morganson? Morganson. Yeah. Moenson is actually how you pronounce it in Danish, which is where my father was born and raised. So it's a good Danish name, but not one you hear in the U.S. all that often. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. well, we'll work on that. You know, listen, let's just check in something real quick here as we've kind of rolled out of a pandemic now for a little while and check in on the Uber business. I'm just kind of curious because, boy, I don't know, there could have been a business at some level more affected, dare I, if I can say, kind of negatively and then unusually positively. So you can talk a little bit just what's happened to Uber over the last couple of years, three years for Sure. I mean, yeah, I think everyone has had their own COVID pandemic experience and Uber certainly was not immune to that. It was funny because I actually started at Uber in February of 2020, which was a very interesting time to be starting at a company that was basically entirely a mobility business at the time. Needless to say, about a month in, I was uh, a little bit thinking, what have I done? (laughs) The mobility business, as you can imagine, basically stopped almost overnight. And at the time, I was looking after marketing for Europe, Middle East and Africa, which meant I was, along with my team, having to think through how do we communicate what's going on in more than 40 countries around the world, all of which had different 
policies and guidelines and and rules around the extent to which people could move. So it was certainly a very interesting time to start at this company. And I would say we were very, very fortunate because in addition to the core mobility business, we also had Uber Eats, which is, of course, our delivery business. And while the world stopped moving in cars, all of a sudden delivery became almost the lifeblood of a bunch of restaurants and also, frankly, for people, just a way to feel like you were still able to live somewhat of a normal life. And so while the mobility business slowed down greatly, the eats business went through the roof. And now, obviously, on the other side, to the extent that we are, we're seeing that the eats business has accelerated massively over the last couple of years to the point where it was a much smaller business than mobility when I started Uber. And now I would say it's on equal footing. So it's been an interesting few years, to say the least. Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine February rolling into March, April. And, and listen, you know, MMA is a global organization. And I remember the early conversations with the MMA team, which obviously, like everybody, we were doing pretty regularly. And there were parts of Europe that just were a giant shit show around the COVID and pandemic. And no disrespect, obviously, to the people. That's not what I mean. But I mean, like, it really hit. Spain in particular, I remember, got hit really hard. It was really, really interesting just trying to keep up with the way every different country reacted to COVID from very, very extreme lockdown, like you say, in parts of Southern Europe and, and what have you, to the Nordics, which were taking a much more laid back approach to it. And nobody really knew what the right model was. And I don't even know that today we necessarily know exactly either. But trying to manage through that was really rather interesting. And especially given the incredible close contact, I mean, I've sort of noticed just myself in the last year that I still enter an Uber and I'm a very big Uber rider. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I noticed that when I enter now, I'm, I stop, I pause, I go, oh, no, I don't need to have a mask. OK, I can get in and keep going. Yeah. So like it really sort of modified my forever impression of my behavior. Yeah, it was also interesting to think about when do you start pulling back on some of those things that have become so normal? You know, there was that awkward transition where it's like, well, do we leave the mask rules in place? And I don't know if you remember this, but in a lot of parts of the world, we also had these sort of uh, makeshift dividers between the drivers and the passengers. And when do you take those down and, and what have you? But I'm very happy that we're back to a little bit more life as usual. Yeah, no, no, no. And listen, I'm not here to get into sort of any public disclosures of uh, information isn't already in earnings, but is it really Uber mobility, Uber Eats is 50-50, give or take a little? Is that what I hear you say that or no? I mean, I don't want to say anything that I can't say either, but in general, the two have very equal footing at this point, I would say. And you know, and that is the funny thing too, David, when I remember talking to board members over the time, some of them were embarrassed to kind of go, well, I know it's really terrible out there and incredibly empathetic to their teams and even the mental health struggles are the one that someone's like, but our business is really good. It really is just the whole craziest times for us as an industry and as a population have gone through. But David, you mentioned though that you had left Google, you'd been at Google, went to Uber. So that has its own story that we can kind of get into at some point. A pretty damn good company to work for than to enter a pandemic with a motive is. But you also, was it just prior to that, you were at BMW and that was BMW, but largely North America, correct? Correct. Yeah. I am somewhat of a career monogamist. I spent a decade at BMW doing every kind of marketing one can do for the most part, but always based out of the US. And then I spent another decade at Google, primarily on the YouTube business, but then the last three years looking after marketing for Northern Europe. And then, like I said, in 2020, switched over to Uber first out of Europe for a couple of years and now in the US for going on about a year and a half. And for our listeners, just so they know, Uber doesn't use a CMO title for whatever reason they've decided not to do that. But David is the head of marketing globally for the company. 
That's right. Yeah, we look after about 70 countries around the world. Crazy. Yes. And I think I've taken Ubers in many or most of those. <laughs> so the funny thing for you is that you got into BMW in part because you're a car guy. I think I've heard you describe yourself. But you didn't go into actually marketing, but then you got somehow lured into marketing with BMWs. And I think your background, if I remember right, is a trained as, as a, in economics. And That's right. Your undergrad work was in, undergrad, was in economics. So BMW feels obvious because you're a car guy. and I'd love to hear more about what your passion is around cars. And then uh, how'd you end up in marketing? As an economics major, I wasn't really sure what I actually wanted to do when I grew up, to be honest. I always just enjoyed economics, and I went to a liberal arts college, which meant that was probably the closest major there was to a business major. And so rather than picking a job based on the type of job, I picked the job based on the kind of company. In other words, like I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I figured let's think about where I want to do it. And I've always been afflicted with a deep passion for cars for whatever reason. I don't actually know how to explain it. Ever since I was a kid, I've been reading car magazines and I still subscribe to multiple car magazines today. And so I figured let's just go somewhere that I'm passionate about the products and it'll hopefully work itself out. So that's how I ended up at BMW. I was an intern. I started at the very bottom. I was doing vehicle distribution, working with about 70 dealers on the West Coast to just to help make sure that they're getting their cars on time and what have you. And my first permanent job at BMW, my manager when I was an intern was told me, just apply to every job that comes up. And so I applied for finance jobs. I applied for HR jobs. I applied for, you know, you name it. And the first one I happened to get was a dream job. It was running event marketing for BMW. And that was when I got the marketing bug. I was like, you know what? This is what I was meant to do. I love these products and this is my chance to tell more people about them. So I really haven't looked back. I did one operations stint when I was at BMW, but the rest of my career has always been marketing because I just really love the idea of how do you convince others to share the passion that you have for the products? Right. Well, let's put a little pitch out there, too, because my background, I don't know if you knew, is economics. Also, that was my undergraduate work also. And uh, I did realize I very much wanted to be in marketing. And I found it a real benefit, by the way. I, I mean, you and I are going to kind of get into this here, but I think marketing doesn't focus enough on the cost benefit analysis. They just tend to like things because they sound good rather than sort of, well, what's the underlying business dynamics of the investment decision that we're making? I think that's a great point. I think also economics is fundamentally around consumer behaviors. It's from an economic lens, but it's why do we do the things that we do and how do we make the purchase decisions we make and what have you. And so I think that that also implicitly has helped guide me in my career is thinking through the consumer first and what makes the consumer tick. And economics is very much about that, I think. Yeah. Although it's funny, I do remember that I was actually taught it in the age when we believed humans were rational. Right. I think the schools moved on now. I said, well, they're not really that rational, actually. <laughs> so I'm yeah, exactly. Sure where we I know a that. lot of the very traditional economics has proven to be not necessarily the way people actually act. It looks great on paper, but not in reality. So, yeah, I think that remains something that is super interesting to me. Yeah, no, no, no. And listen, I think, you know, like a book like a Freakonomics is kind of a good example. Like, how do we really get to the underlying facts of the world and trying to understand what human behavior really is and what drives some of those other pins? I got to meet and work with Stephen Love. In fact, he wrote the foreword for my book a number of years ago. And it was one of like, the greatest joys to listen to that mind work. Hey, but David, we missed the most important things. What's in the stable today? What do you got? <laughs> I drive a Tesla and I don't want to say anything bad about Tesla because I feel very lucky to have such a nice car and it's the perfect commuter car. It's my first electric car and I have to say electric is very much the future. It's super clear, like just such a fantastic way to get in and out of the city, which I do quite regularly. 
the reason I'm laughing is it's not necessarily like the height of my passion as it relates to automobiles. So I am regularly looking at various automotive websites for what might be a fun little weekend car. But at the moment, I make do with the perfectly lovely Tesla. Just the one, I'm surprised. I really expected to hear a whole sort of stable of cars. I'm disappointed. At least a 65 Mustang, maybe a 69 Barracuda. I mean, you know, listen, I remember those muscle. That was, there's a lot of fun cars I look at in the same I'm way. I'm so. more of an 80s European guy. If I were to get something as a oh. second car for me, the old 911s have a special place in my heart. Oh my God, that'd be so great. Hey, by the way, I actually own Tesla number 13,000. I was very early. And I agree with you. I remember driving that car and going, oh, my God, I'm living in the future. I mean, it was revolutionary and still is. I mean, it still has that same feel yeah, to it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Let's get into our topic at hand today. Okay. So as we know, building better CMOs is very focused on trying to understand. This is not meant to just be hero worship for CMOs. We, there's enough awards for all you guys that you get all the time, <laughs> you, you and other members. And David sits on the global board of the MMA. So. But I think it's really about what do we not exactly get right? What can we be better? Because I think that's where the opportunity for improvement for us becomes. So if I ask you the question, you know, what do you think marketing, marketers, CMOs, however you want to approach it, don't necessarily get right about marketing? What would you put out there for that in your mind? So being that you lead the MMA, I think you're probably expecting me to say some sort of answer along the lines of, you know, we don't measure adequately the brand impact on long-term effects or things like that, which is probably true. But the place my mind actually goes is more around as an industry, I think we're too embarrassed by what we do. Our job is to sell stuff and to grow our businesses. But as an industry, I think we tend to think that selling is a bit of a dirty word. And so we do all this beautiful work that, as you said, wins all kinds of awards, but it's so afraid of being seen as selling that it doesn't actually sell anything. And in turn, it doesn't move the needle for the business. And so I think that there's this fallacy that you can either sell something or you can do work that entertains people. And at Uber, we're really thinking that selling can be entertaining and entertainment can sell. So if I wanna make that concrete for you, if you look at, for example, our Super Bowl campaign this year, you want me to do a jingle. Oh, it's not a jingle. One hit for Uber One. No, that sounds like a jingle to me. Diddy don't do jingles. We're talking about a hit song. Want a hit? Uber One can save you on rides and eats. Yes, yeah, We actually had marketing executives in the spot asking Diddy to create a hit song to sell our membership program, which was about as blatantly overt about selling as you can get. But also that was what actually made it entertaining. And so on this one for me, it's as an industry, I think we should embrace that selling is sexy. And I think that we should be proud of the work that we do and the role that we play in growing our businesses and not sort of be shy or embarrassed about the fact that fundamentally great advertising does sell stuff. It's funny that you would even say that we're shy or embarrassed about that we're supposed to be here to sell stuff. Because if I remember in the hierarchy of professions that are respected, we're somewhere near all due respect, used car <laughs> exactly. salesman, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be a funny line for us to draw at some level to do that. But I agree with you. We tend to, yes, we give awards based on amazing creative ideas, not always the biggest awards for success around it. Yeah. And I always tell my team, like, I want to do amazing creative. That is absolutely the goal and the benchmark. And I think we're getting better and better every year at doing that. But fundamentally, if it doesn't move the needle, then it has failed. And similarly, if I have to choose between something that really, really is going to 
move the business or something that is going to be really beautiful and win a lot of awards, I'm always going to pick the thing that moves the business. Sometimes the perfect ad is just the ad that delivers on what you're looking for in that moment. And it's not necessarily the most creative ad. And so I just believe that you can have both and you should aspire to have both, but let's not lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, even though it is, like you say, sort of associated with used car salesmen and what have you, like fundamentally we're here to move the business and to sell things. Yeah. And I think we need to respect that as a craft and an art and a practice that we have to produce growth is usually the term. I see a greater, greater adoption of the concept of growth. So listen, there's a couple of things that have to be done right. Okay. So let's parse some of those. One of it's going to be sort of the messaging, the creative itself. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you've also got to have pretty good measurement techniques in place to really know that you're doing the right thing. So I guess as you look at ads, as you look at the ads that Uber does or has done, how do you really know that they're really great for selling before you go out and spend a hundred million dollars or whatever behind them? If I had the answer to that, I would probably be doing a lot better than I am, I suppose. You know, I think everyone is trying to figure out how do you know that the advertising you do is working and how do you quantify, especially on the brand side, how do you quantify the impact? There's no question that is challenging. Everyone likes to quote the Wanamaker quote around, what is it, 50% of my advertising works? I just don't know which 50%. I think we've gotten better at it, but I think there's still some truth in that statement. In terms of how we do it before we even run the ad, we do creative pre-testing for any of our campaigns that are of a significant spend level. And we look at things like, you know, memorability, breakthrough, favorability, and what have you to try to understand and try to predict what are going to be the ads that are most likely to work. At the same time, this is part of why we get paid to do what we do. There is a degree of intuition and just knowing good work and having a sense for what is actually going to resonate with your audience that unfortunately, no data will ultimately be able to tell you fully. You can use data to inform intuition, but at the end of the day, there's an element of intuition as well that has to play a role. So I think it's the combination of those two things. Hey, what is an Uber competing against? I mean, let's let's just take Lyft out of the equation. I don't know if it's just Lyft, if it's just another competitor, at least Lyft in this country, in the U.S., or is it that you're competing against them taking their own car? Are you competing against them choosing to take a bike? What is advertising marketing intended to focus people on? Change behavior or change in a relationship to another brand? The way that I think about it and talk to my team is if you're asking kind of what is the job of my team, it's around changing the way people think and feel about Uber. And what I mean by that is on the feel part, there's obviously, you know, every brand is trying to drive favorability and brand love and what have you. The reality of Uber is our history is not perfect. There was a time where there was pretty strong negative sentiment towards the brand of Uber. And so we're on a journey to basically change the way people think about us and show that we're not the company we were six or seven years ago. And on the think part, for a lot of people, Uber is still getting in that Uber X ride and taking a ride at the click of a button. But we are much more than we once were. So not only do we now have the delivery business, which we still need to build awareness for, and, and in many markets, we are the market leader, but not in all, including in the US, we're not the market leader. And so how do we get people to think of Uber as more than just taking a ride, but also as delivery, as well as how do we expand that perception among users as well? So to your point, there's all kinds of different ways that people can move from A to B. We want to be the solution for basically all of them. So everything from micro mobility and scooters all the way up to we have boats, we have luxury cars, we have 
EV cars. We have in London, we're experimenting with, you can actually book flights, like basically every form of mobility we want to be a solution for. And so we need to get people to think beyond just that UberX experience when they think about mobility. And then on the delivery side, we're now many places around the world, we're delivering groceries and we're delivering other things beyond just restaurant food delivery. So it's really about expanding the way people think of us. And the goal of the company is to reimagine the way the world moves for the better. And so any kind of movement, whether it's moving goods and services or it's moving people, we want to be the best solution for. Hey, David, also too, you have a real complexity to a business like yours, which is that the delivery is done by somebody who's not necessarily an employee of the company all the time. I, I'm not trying to get the complexity of that political question, stay out of that. But like you don't control what a driver does. You don't control the cars themselves and that. And yet I bet so much of Uber perception is predicated on the last ride I had or the worst ride I had, I guess. I don't know. Retail has the same problem. I've always said major retailers are brought to their knees by 16-year-olds working in the summer. I mean, you know, that's a real problem. How do you look at that in your role and capacity? I see a core part of my role and my team's role to make sure that we are helping to build that relationship with our earner base. So there's drivers, there's couriers, there's a group of people that makes up over 5 million earners that use Uber to earn. And so I think that there is a, at times a perception that Uber doesn't care enough about that group. We actually care deeply about that group. And so part of my team's role is to figure out how do we communicate with them better and show them that we really do think about things very deeply and that we care a lot about their experience earning with Uber. And so that's at the heart of a lot of what we do. Because to your point, at the end of the day, the discussion you have in that car ride to the airport is going to influence your thought about our brand as much as my beautiful Super Bowl spot. A hundred percent. You know, when Kellen Smith Kenny, who you know now is the CMO of, of AT&T and the, and the chair of the MMA board, when she was there, she was she was on the board with us. I remember her saying there was a couple of things. One is that the business was a lot about making sure that there was a car on a corner when a person is there in a need. The complexity of that operation, I can hardly imagine. And two, and here's adds that complexity. I think Uber's the largest employer in the world. Is that right? In terms of numbers of people? Yeah. I mean, depending on how you define employer, we have, like I say, over 5 million people earning with Uber, which does make it the largest workforce in the world. Crazy. Which is a huge responsibility. And to your point, really complex from an operational standpoint. I think we have some of the best operational teams in the world at Uber and they're figuring out that balance. It's a very delicate balance between supply and demand. We're back to economics again, Greg. The reality is if we get either side of that equation wrong, it's a bad experience for the other side. If you have more demand than you have supply, that results in higher prices for people. It results in long wait times. It's not a good experience. Similarly, if you have too much supply and not enough demand, it's not a good experience for our earners because the fares go down and they don't earn as much on an hourly basis and what have you. And so the thing that we're always trying to do is figure out how do we reach the basically the equilibrium between supply and demand. And so my team plays an active role in that as well, thinking through, OK, is this now a time where marketing should step in and really grow supply or is it a time where we should really grow 
demand. And during COVID, that's really changed a lot depending on which year it is, right? There was this period where I think lots and lots of industries were seeing that it was actually hard to get people back to working again. And so we started to do a lot of marketing to get earners back on the platform. Now we're starting to see that in many parts of the world, that balance is getting better. Demand is now the thing that we need to increase again. So we're always balancing between those two, which makes for quite a bit of complexity, especially when you think about it across 70 different countries around the world. Boy, as much as any business then, your effect on what is in essence a supply chain is pretty complicated. Do you have to build the systems to be able to dial up and dial down marketing on a, on a weekly or daily basis? Is that what that kind of could mean? Monthly basis? How far are you gone on that? We don't do it on a daily so much, but we are constantly evaluating where we are spending and how we are spending. This is not, unfortunately, the kind of company where you can come in, set a beautiful annual plan or maybe a five-year plan and then just stick to it. That is not the world that I live in. We are always looking at what are the dynamics of the marketplace and then adjusting marketing spend based on it. Oh, 100%. I mean, this is about as far from a CPG tied marketing businesses you can imagine, which is come up with a new point of view and push that out in the marketplace and then, you know, kind of clap your hands together and say, job well done. We've done it again. Uh, yours is like, well, we did it yesterday. Doesn't mean it's going to work today. <laughs> Correct. And actually, if you do it too well, then you break the other side. So it's always this back and forth. There's a monster balance in this. You're right, because my inability to get, I mean, by the way, I was on the board of a company with uh, Menlo Ventures, who was one of your original investors, and they were telling me about the business. It was just revolutionary in sort of its thinking. But what's happened is that Uber now has changed the customer experience for many businesses having nothing to do with mobility. I want to know where the car is. I want to know how fast you're going to be there and whatever that might mean for any other business. I want to know when my hotel room is going to be ready. I'm not here to sit around and wait. I want to know, you know, in the case of delivery, if we're extended delivery, I want to know what's going to happen. I have an expectation now that you're going to be really responsive and I'm going to be able to see where you are in performance. I don't think any business was held to that kind of accountability until Uber. I mean, I think for good or bad, we've kind of created the instant gratification expectations of a whole society, I think. It used to be literally a miracle that you could push a button and within five minutes have a ride. That was such a surprise and delight moment. It was truly incredible. If you remember the first I time remember. or a couple of times you took an Uber. Now you look at it, it says five minutes, like, why isn't it three? Why am I having to wait five? Our expectations have really changed in terms of that instant gratification. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back right after this with David Morganson. Thanks for listening to Building Better CMOs. If you have a second, I'd like to ask a quick favor. Take your phone out and share this episode with someone else. It's all about making marketers better. You could text it to a coworker or a friend, easy. Or you can post it on LinkedIn and tell people why you liked it. There's one other thing that you can do to help Building Better CMOs, and that's to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. There's a link to do it in the show notes. However you support us, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Greg Stewart. Now back to the show. This is Building Better CMOs. Let's get back to my conversation with David Morganson, the Vice President of Marketing at Uber. So, hey, I mentioned earlier too, David, we'd be remiss not to talk about this because I know you love the topic. So, listen, it's not enough just to try to do a good creative that hits the mark and to pre-test those ads. But to your point, ongoing measurement becomes pretty critical, too, because you you don't really know how anything's going to do until you're out in the marketplace. That's, if you're an advertising person like I am, you get that. 
So what have you had to do from a measurement standpoint, measurement infrastructure platform to put in place to be able to sort of manage this? And then obviously I'm going to ask you about managing that kind of complexity in individual markets and so on. So talk a bit about what you guys have done there. I'll be very honest. I'd say we're on a journey as it relates to measurement. I will not stand here and say we are, we've have it all figured out as much as I would love to be able to sit here and say that. And again, I think I talk to a lot of folks that lead marketing for other companies and there's comfort in knowing that this is a challenge that many of us have, especially like I say, more with kind of the mid funnel and upper funnel marketing. We're on that journey as well. And I think that a benefit of digital is obviously that you can measure better than historically we could with more traditional media like I was doing when I first started in my career. You know, you can do a lot more of the brand lift type of studies where you have actual experimental design and you can have holdout groups versus exposed. And we're doing more and more of that. We're taking advantage of all of our partners' solutions to understand what is the lift that we're driving. We also look at market level holdout tests to see, you know, what happens if you run in a particular geo and you don't in another. And can we learn from that? That actually is one of the best ways we have to, at a broad scale, understand the impact of a campaign, not only upper funnel, but also lower funnel. And then we're obviously looking at other ways that we can try to model out the impact of the work that we do. The hardest part for us, I think, is how do you take all of those distinct results and put them together into a holistic story on how did a campaign perform, which sounds easy, but actually it's maybe a little bit more challenging than folks might think. And so I would say we have good signal at this point based on those different types of analyses we're doing, but we're still working towards getting to the perfect holistic story of this is exactly how this campaign has impacted the full funnel. So David, you and I were we were both, you know, the MMA last week had its annual, as we do in the third weekend of July every year for everyone, there were a CMO CEO summit. And as we have done in years, we did more this year than ever. We brought a whole series of new MMA insights to the marketplace, all focused on this concept of really promoting growth sales. Absolutely. I mean, everything MMA does is incredibly focused on how do we make marketers better at selling for the investment that we're making. And so you sent me a note afterwards. I'm going to ask you to kind of articulate some of what you saw there. So there's a study that the MMA's done, which is we call brand is performance. How do you understand brand as performance long-term? Because there's a tension in the organization between short and long-term that some people believe that, you know, you there's in most organizations seems to be a performance short-term group and a long-term brand group. And there's tension between those organizations. So we were trying to bring math to understand the dynamic. So you saw the most recent results now from Kroger's that we have and that follows on from Ally earlier this year, Ally Financials. You said like, yeah, guys, I think you're, you're like good underlying research, but you're not asking exactly the right questions or getting to the right conclusion and analysis as I kind of read your email note. Is that fair? Yeah. So talk a little bit about what do you think broadly we need to understand and feel free to give as much specific direction to the MMA here as possible around this. I'm I'm open to, we got to get it right too. Yeah, go ahead. I think brand as performance and the concept of understanding what is the impact of brand on fundamental business impact is the right territory, Mm -hmm. right? So then it gets into what are we actually asking and trying to solve for? And I think the work that was shared looked at the fact that people that are favorable towards your brand are better customers than people that are unfavorable and sort of quantified that in terms of purchase behavior. Yeah, in fact, it lowered the cost of acquisition by 85%. If somebody's converted to favorable, if the brand investments have been made, that consumer's converted, then we could see an 85% lower cost to convert them customers. So you're right, that's a pretty substantive value for brand, but it's not enough, but go ahead, yeah. 
the challenge I have with that is it's somewhat intuitive. Like I think that most people are not going to question that people that are favorable towards your brand will be better right. customers than people that are unfavorable to your brand. And so I think it's a good step in the journey towards answering the question around what impact does brand have on ultimate performance. But I would love for us to push further and to start to look at things like how do you optimize across performance marketing and brand marketing? How do you understand the short-term and long-term benefits of brand relative to performance? For me, what, what I struggle with more is this optimizing the levers between the two and how do we do that? And I think that that's where the work done to date isn't going quite deep enough yet, but I am sure it will get there. You know, I think that data... I think the first view that Kroger's had of that data was Wednesday before the event. So barely a week for them. So we're still digesting. So I agree with that. I love that people say they don't treat brand as sales. Like everybody runs a brand campaign and then they measure current sales. So we all know that's going on. So we call it brand. We know we're looking at sales. But we didn't know previously because the measurement techniques didn't allow it and we had to come up with a new one to do that, is that we now know if you make $100 today from that brand campaign, that over the next 9 to 12 months, as far as we've measured out, uh, you should make another additional $140, $150 plus. So, you know, you're two and a half xing the initial value. That's information for the CFO, for she or he to go, oh, okay, I know that if I get sales now, I'm going to have a lingering tail of sales. So that, you know, I can evaluate that in terms of this investment. But I agree with you that the original thesis of this research is just what you said, was understand how do I balance between those two, recognizing that businesses have different needs and how I learn to pull those levers. I mean, in some regards, it's probably the same as you trying to figure out how you put a driver on the corner where a passenger's about to step forward and hit an Uber app to somebody come get me. I mean, we need that optimization. Yeah, I think we need to better understand the opportunity costs as well, right? To your point, if you want to use the analogy, if I can put a driver on this corner or on that corner, which is the better corner? I understand that $100 on brand might get me another $150. What does $100 in performance get me? Because some of the assumptions in long-term value of brand also apply to performance, but perhaps at a different rate. And so what is that difference? Is it right. only 100 extra on the performance side because performance tends to be shorter term? How do we make those comparisons is where I think it gets really, really interesting. Well, and just maybe for the listener's sake around this, just to, because people are probably going to wonder, we did find out from Ally, and we had to model this because remember our research, short and long term, we're looking at current, and then we were able to measure another nine, 12 months away. So in some, that's a shorter term than five years. Okay. But when we model the behavior, we find that if you were to invest in performance over a two-year period, and you were to invest in brand over a two-year period, that brand would outperform performance by plus 40%. Now, the challenge then for CFOs is that do they have the patience to wait for higher returns 18, 24 months from now? Or, listen, businesses have different needs at different times, and with shareholders, it changes that whole game. So we're also managing against that sort of uh, element of the business, I think, right? Always, always, right? It's always that trade-off of how do you optimize between short-term and long-term? I think that is the name of the game. I'm not sure if I'm in risky territory here, David. It just kind of occurs to me. Let me try to ask it. How often does finance, and if you want to pick on Google, maybe here, you know, broader companies than just Uber, how often does finance come to you and say, hey, we really need you to dial this up? I always hear the stories about where they say, hey, I need you to dial this down because we are, you know, we're trying to make earnings this quarter. But how often does finance come and say, you know, we need you to dial things up because we're we're going to have challenges later on or we need to see something happen. You get that much? 
It goes both ways. You know, you get either finance or within my world, operations has a very close relationship with marketing and our operations team will be keeping a literally hourly view on how we're performing on different things. And so, yeah, I mean, we have those discussions on a regular basis around, hey, should we actually be dialing up here in this market? We see that there's momentum happening on this particular product area or what have you. What would happen if we were to really kind of light the flame under this particular product or geography? Or similarly, you know, hey, things aren't working out quite the way we thought they would in this area. We need to be able to balance our various levers and, you know, we need to see, is it possible to pull back in a given market for marketing for some period of time and see what happens and what have you. So those are discussions that happen certainly on a, a number of times on a quarterly basis. Again, because we're looking at 70 countries. I think if I were looking after just the US, probably that would be a little bit less common because the reality is it takes time to put plans into place and these aren't necessarily all fast levers to change. But when you look across a global company that has pretty broad distribution, then inevitably you're gonna have some of those conversations on a pretty regular basis. Dave, as much as your orientation is to, to drive sales, and so I'm sure you look at everything that you do, the systems, the measurement, the creative, to try to understand that. Here's a funny one for you. How often do you feel like you're still surprised by how advertising performs? Surprised in what way? Do you feel like you kind of got it dialed in and figured out at this point? Or do you kind of go, we just didn't expect that once we got in the market? I would say that the challenge with understanding how advertising performs when it doesn't look like it's performing well is understanding why. I think it can be surprising when you see a campaign where you feel like you nailed it on the creative and you felt like you had a sound media strategy and then you're just not seeing the results in the data. For us, it's often trying to diagnose why is that? Is it the creative? Is it the media strategy? Is it product market fit? Is it, you know, there's a number of different things that could be at play. And so, Yes, it can be surprising, but often it's more than being surprising. It's perplexing and trying to figure out what is causing the lack of results on this one when we thought we got everything right. That can be a really challenging puzzle to solve. Sometimes it's you just didn't have enough media weight or you spread yourself too thin or the targeting was off. You know, there's a, you know very well, there's a million things that could lead to that. And so trying to isolate what actually went wrong is the hardest part of that. Right, right. Mickey Rourke in his first movie called Body Heat had a very funny line I've ever forgotten. He said, he basically was speaking to William Hurt and his point was, he goes, there's 50 ways you can screw up a murderer. You're lucky if you don't miss half of them. So I've always thought of marketing kind of that way. Like there's 50 things you get wrong. You're lucky if you don't miss half of them sometimes. The last question in this area, then we'll move on to uh, some other career advice you might have. It's a funny one. Why do you think marketers are embarrassed about the sales thing? Go back to your original thesis. Yeah, what's going on? I should probably caveat heavily. I think plenty are not. I think it's as a, sort of at an industry level, I sense this kind of reluctance and this embarrassment around being seen as people that just sell stuff, right? And it probably has to do with the fact that a lot of advertising is bad. Like being closely associated with advertising when a lot of the advertising you see is bad is challenging. And frankly, we live in a world now where Everyone has a microphone and everyone can critique advertising as well. And so you are hard pressed to run advertising that doesn't have someone on a social channel lambasting it. Hey, David, I heard put this way. Those doing marketing is a side hustle. That's how I've heard it explained. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I always joke that, you know, you don't tell your surgeon how they should perform the operation, but, you know, everyone's an expert on marketing. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, you know, look, I think that all of that plays into it a bit. And I think that nobody wants to be associated with bad advertising or being, you know, a used car salesman. And I think as a result, there's this false meme that's like, you can either do great work or you can sell stuff. And that's where I just want the industry to think about it as, look, we can do both of these things. Both of these things can be true. Great entertainment, great advertising can very much still happen without us having to be too shy about the fact that we're selling. The other thing I would say is consumers ultimately know that most marketing is trying to sell them things. And so if you try to hide that fact, a lot of them will read through that. Today's consumers are so much savvier than they were generations ago. And so I don't think you're fooling anyone anyway. So I, I would just say, let's embrace it and let's lean into it. And let's just do great work that also sells stuff. I loved it. And I, lo and I did love your Super Bowl ad. Diddy don't do jingles. That was very funny. So thank you. Diddy, Diddy don't do jingles. Okay. Hey, let's talk about some career here. So, and you know, I have a thesis here within building better CMOs that, you know, listen, I don't think a lot of people, the opportunity for me to get to work with a lot of CMOs like yourself, they don't really understand how hard it is to get to these jobs, how hard it can be to actually continue to perform at the level of a C-suite executive, especially in a company, oh my God, the size of Uber, let alone many, many others. So let's start with this. You have one of, I think, the more unusual paths I've seen. You got started in America with BMW. You end up going to Europe at some point with Google switch over to Uber, come back in charge of Uber globally to America. I, I'm not sure I've seen that path by anybody else. Can you talk a little bit about either the decisions you made now or your reflections back on that now that you've kind of experienced that as a positive career trajectory for you? I went to Europe for both personal and professional reasons. On the personal side, I just thought it'd be fun, <laughs> candidly. Yep. Like, Good for you. Which it was. You know, It's an amazing opportunity and had all kinds of benefits personally. And you know, I'm one that loves to travel. And the travel opportunity when you live in Amsterdam, like I did, is phenomenal. You can get anywhere pretty much in Europe within about two hours. And so I took full advantage of that. And then professionally, as you said, I was working at Google. Google is obviously a huge company. And I knew that I wanted to get to a CMO type of role. And if you work for Google in the US, it's very hard to stand out just because of the sheer size of the organization. Whereas if you go out into the regions, you have basically what's a, a light version of a CMO role. And so for me, I was doing basically a CMO type role for Northern Europe, looking after consumer marketing, B2B marketing, our reputational marketing. It really was a, a sort of a prep course in being a CMO. And I think only because I left the US and had that opportunity did I get the next role, which was to lead marketing for EMEA for Uber. I don't think I ever would have gotten that kind of a role had I stayed in the mega organization that is Google marketing in the US. And so I am a huge advocate for folks to take those kinds of chances and those types of career moves, because I do think that it gives you a different perspective. And also, frankly, just getting out of kind of the mothership and seeing what it's like to be in a region, which anyone who's worked in a region and worked at a headquarters knows there's a lot of different dynamics between those two. It gives you a really good perspective that actually makes me better at my current job because I've done that work as well. And I know what it's like to be in a region reporting to a U.S. based headquarters kind of situation. So mm -hmm. for me, it was, I think, something that really accelerated my career because I could sort of stand out from the 
large organization that exists in the U.S. and have something that was, like I say, closer to a CMO kind of role by doing that, which wouldn't have been possible in the U.S. But David, it's got to be a testament to you too at some level, because I think going to be in any other culture is hard. To take on leadership in another culture can be really difficult. And then I think U.S. has a certain amount of snottiness about its marketing and advertising. We're running a worldwide organization. I do think U.S. is pretty darn sophisticated in many ways around For sure. measurement and data and the kinds of work that we do. You know, Internet started here. There's just a lot of advantages. I guess the question I think, I, if, if there is a question there, I think the question might be like, what do you think you personally brought to the table to be able to pull that off? I would have thought the cards could be stacked against you, and it didn't just happen once for you. Like, you've done this in a couple of different paths. So, very interesting. What do you think you're doing? I don't know if it's a style question. I don't know if it's a just raw intelligence question. I'm not sure. What do you think? First of all, thank you. It's very generous of you. I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way, but I'll certainly graciously take the compliment. I think that probably I had the benefit of working for U.S.-based organizations abroad, which I think is probably different than working for international companies. At the end of the day, there's a bit of a cultural mix between the culture of the company and the culture of the country. And the fact that the culture of the company was still Google and then Uber, those are cultures that are founded in the U.S. And there is a sort of U.S. predisposition, I suppose, to the way that you work. So that probably made it easier from a cultural standpoint than if I had jumped into a local Dutch company. I'm almost certain And I had been at Google for seven years at that point. So I knew how to succeed at Google and I knew how Google worked. And so I think the transition was easier for me as a result of that than it could have been. There's a great book. I don't know if you've read it called The Culture Map, which talks all about different ways of working in different cultures around the world. I highly recommend it to anyone that is going to work abroad because the reality is, even though I have some international experience now, it doesn't mean that I can just plop myself into another country and be successful there. They're all so different. And that book does an outstanding job of actually isolating the differences between different cultures. I suppose another one on that point is that one of the things that the culture map shows is the Netherlands is a very direct society, which anyone that's spent time working in the Netherlands would probably know. Dutch people are infamous for being very direct. I tend to be pretty direct. I believe in transparency. I believe in honesty. I believe in sort of saying what I think. And so perhaps I also had a bit of a benefit from my own style of working and leading and the fact that that lined up pretty well with the Dutch style. I don't know, though I did have to adjust across Northern Europe because it's not all the same. The Dutch style is not necessarily the same as the Swedish style or the Norwegian style or what have you. So I guess the last thing that comes to mind is just appreciating those cultural differences. But at the end of the day, the way that I try to manage is really at an individual level more than at a cultural level. You can have multiple people from the same country. They all work very, very differently. And so for me, I guess it's about understanding how each person likes to work and trying to figure out how we can best work together based on that. Very impressive. Listen, then uh, maybe I would do well being in New York City. That We'd love that kind of direct thing. I'm not sure it's appreciated everywhere in yeah, the exactly. world. Well, New York <laughs> so. is New Amsterdam, right? So it, it probably comes from uh, some vestiges of Dutch culture from many, many years before. 
Yeah, that are just really hard living here. I'm not sure exactly how the city got to where it does or a life of the mob. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but something made this city particularly tough and, or, or whatever. Listen, interesting, too, there, just maybe to comment on. So, listen, you work for two very product-focused companies. I think Uber and Google are both very product-focused, typical for tech companies. And they're two tech companies, all based out of the valley at some level. Google's older, but not that old even still. What about the differences in sort of the two different cultures and dynamics you had to learn as being a senior executive in the interoperant? And I'm not looking for you to comment particularly about the dangers of it or the difficulties of any one of them. That's not it. I'm just looking at sort of what the differences are between those companies that are otherwise similar. Yeah. And I would actually say I've worked for three product companies because BMW is very much a product-led company as BMW well. too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think that, you know, if I think about all three of them, the biggest difference between each one is speed, to be honest. BMW works on a seven-year product life cycle, very long-term planning and as it needs to, given all the engineering that goes behind developing a new vehicle. And then you get to Google, where obviously speed of tech is much higher Uber is literally, and someone told me this before I went from Google, they said, you know, going to Uber is like shifting into a seventh gear. It's one more gear. Oh, really? Which at the time I was very skeptical of. I sort of put it to the side and just laughed it off. And then I got to Uber and I realized, oh, he was right. This is yet another gear. The speed at which we work at Uber is really on a different level than just about anywhere I've ever heard of. It's certainly on a different level than anywhere I've worked, which is... I think there's good and bad to that. I think the good to it is incredibly agile. It means that when we had a pandemic, the executional excellence that was able to respond to that was phenomenal. The bad to it or the downside to it is just not everyone can hang at that speed. It just frankly is a really, really quick culture. And there's a emphasis on performance and impact and getting things done at pace, which I've seen brilliant people not able to really do well in that kind of an environment. So for me, that's been the biggest difference across them. I think what's common across them is really smart people, very passionate, driven by the work we're doing and believing in the products. It's really more the pace at which that's being done that I would say Uber is at that seventh gear. Wow, that's very interesting, David. And I would not having worked at either one of those companies, but being a startup guy, you're right. It's all about making better decisions as damn quickly as you can and get stuff done at a high rate of speed. And you're right, I've also seen people I think are just intellectually gifted, like unbelievably smart, but the pace would have killed them, it felt like. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a little over dramatic, but it's, you know, it's a, that can be, it can be tough. Not everybody adopts to that. That's right. And like I say, I've seen people that have been highly successful in careers not do well at both Google and Uber. You know, it's a cultural thing and it's a, some people work well at that. And there's also, I think, when you work at that pace, there's not necessarily the same established processes and what have you that you have at a CPG or an auto or what have you. I think also you touched on the fact that both those companies are pretty new, Uber and Google, in a, in a macro sense, which if you compare that to a BMW or a PNG or whatever, they've been doing this for decades and decades and decades. And so they have really rigorous processes and they know how they do it and it's all very well defined we are not always well-defined. And some people thrive in that kind of an environment where you're kind of making the rules as you go. And other people, again, it's uncomfortable and not the kind of environment they want to work in. Yeah. You and I have never talked about this, but I went as the head of marketing to launch cars.com, which is you know one of the sort of now still remaining online classifieds for use and news car. 
And it was interesting. I had to explain. I was in Chicago to do that out of New York. And I'd, I'd done a couple of startups here. So I had some sense of the thing, of, of that pace and speed. And it was always wired that way anyway. But I went to Chicago and I used to have to explain to people, like, your job is not to finish your email box today. Your job is to create some measurable difference in the business today. And by the way, we're going to ask you to do that tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Like You have to think in terms of what am I doing to move the business forward today? Yeah, not very many businesses operate that way, I don't think. I love that. Yeah, we talk a lot about bias to action. What are you actually getting done and shipping out? It's not about who did the best internal PowerPoint presentation. It's about what is the work in the world and how is that impacting things? But one of the complexities of that, though, too, is that you also have a monster business that could be dramatically affected by getting it wrong or even just a little bit wrong. I mean, look at our friends here at Bud Light who made the decision around a particular influencer that really turned against them. So, you know, and that has huge significant business effect to them. How does Uber manage? I mean, when you move fast, you can break things unknowingly or unexpectedly, or how do you work around that? Yeah, look, I think that there's a lot of testing that takes place to try to figure out these things before we roll it out globally to everyone. There's very few things that we just flip a switch and hope it works. You can still do that at a pretty high velocity. We have a new product called Uber Teens, which is enabling, as the name sounds, it's enabling parents to put their teenagers into Ubers. And it has a number of parent-friendly features so that you can monitor the trip and what have you so that you feel comfortable doing that. And that's a product that if you get that wrong, that could be really a problem, right? And so we rolled it out in a couple of small cities in Canada and saw you know, that it was working really well. And we've sort of been slowly rolling it out further as we're able to ensure that it meets all of the criteria that we set that you would expect of a product like that. And so while we have been quick and starting to scale it once we saw a signal that it really can deliver on what it needs to. We were very deliberate in making sure that it had all the criteria that parents want, that we've worked with parents' organizations and we've done, you know, focus groups with parents and what have you. So it is a balance between speed, but also making sure that we've really vetted everything that we do to the extent that we can. And usually we do that through small scale pilots to make sure that it delivers on the promise. Nice to hear you're doing that as a, as a father who's raised uh, <laughs> teenagers in New York City. <laughs> and by the way, I will say, I find one of the common conversations around Uber that just randomly would come up with people was around some of your safety measures. The fact that if I'm stalled or the car is stalled, that you'll reach out to me and ask what's going on. Or if the trip's taking too long, you ask me what's going on. And I mean, it's really incredible to the degree which you have built real safety into that, into the system it feels like now. It is fundamental to our company and our culture. Safety is the heart of what we do. And I mean, if you think about it, it has to be, you're getting has in to be. a stranger's yeah. car. Like if safety goes away, then the whole thing starts to fall apart. And so thank you for saying that. We spend a ton of time doing everything we can to make sure that the rides are as safe as humanly possible. And as you say, if it detects any sort of anomalies, there's all kinds of interventions that you can take or that we can take. And that's a core part of the way we work every single day. You know, it's kind of interesting too, you sort of mentioned that, and I'm off on a tangent here, but uh, I was meeting with some friends over the weekend who aren't in the tech space. And they were bemoaning things, how terrible it is that tech's advancing in the world. I don't know if it was AI or social media they were focused on, it didn't matter, but there was a sense of fear that came around it. 
I'm not saying that we as tech people, and I can put, if I could put myself in that group, that we're perfect at, but we really, there really has been a lot of good done to try to put trust into systems. I know it might not feel like that. Like I looked at eBay early on to be the first head of marketing for them way, way, way back when, just before Meg Whitman came in. And I was like, I just don't trust how consumers can trade back and forth with each other. Now, obviously, they had started to solve that problem. They figured out Airbnb figured out that problem. Uber needs to figure out that problem. Like, it really is kind of the power of it when I think there's still a lot of just general fear about tech. So it's a funny duality at some level, I guess. I don't know. One of the things I've observed, and I think this was most acute when I was at Google, is there's this kind of life stage, life cycle thing that happens with tech where companies start out and they're kind of the darlings and everyone thinks of them as innovators and wonderful. And, you know, when I first started at Google, the best thing you could say at a cocktail party was you worked at Google because everyone thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Totally. And then Google got bigger and bigger, more and more successful. And all of a sudden the narrative started to change around, well, what's Google doing with my privacy and with my data? And, and you see this with, I think Microsoft went through something similar. And I think the history of tech companies that went from small and became big is always like this, where it starts out as this darling and then it becomes, the narrative really starts to shift and then you need to figure out, okay, how do you operate within that new world yep. if you're working at one of those tech companies? But it's really interesting to see how we go from sort of hero to villain for the majority of large tech companies in the US. That's a pretty pervasive life stage, life cycle evolution. You know, it's funny, you're right, because often we'll talk in tech about crossing the chasm. If I say that to anybody in tech, they know what I mean. They're talking about going from a small company to accelerate into being a bigger company that you've crossed into. I don't know if it's mass at that point, but it's an indication of somehow that mass is coming. But you're right. There actually is another chasm you have to cross that once you start to get past that phase is was the trust chasm. You're 100% correct. And you're right. There's so many companies that have been brutalized by that. Every one of them. Snap, Microsoft was the probably the most famous. All of them. Almost all of them, Facebook, Amazon, all go through that. Coinbase is going through it right now at some level. Exactly what they're getting sort of picked on. So very interesting. Okay, let's do a little lightning round. Then we're going to wrap you up and get you out of here. Who else in marketing, person or company, do you most admire? Anybody recent you've seen that you go, wow, I wish we did their work. Or maybe it's your, maybe it's your team. I don't know. You can go anywhere you want. The company that comes to mind for me, and it's in part because I've been thinking a lot with my team around who's doing really great product marketing not just brand marketing or overall company marketing, but product marketing, Ikea is doing some oh. really cool work. I think they have a campaign right now that's proudly second best. I don't know if you've seen this, if folks haven't, Google it. And it's all about how their products are great, but they're proud to be second best to basically parents. It's about this sort of relationship between parents and their babies. And so you see like the crib and instead of the baby being in the crib, it's in the mom's lap, right? And it's like proudly second best. <laughs> so just lovely, lovely realization of their place in sort of family life and the fact that they can make these products, but at the end of the day, you know, mom and dad will always come first. It's really just beautiful and lovely. And I think a really good example of product marketing. Huh. So Ikea is one that definitely comes to mind. For Boy, me. that's a little self-effacing on their part too. I love that. Exactly. It's not, exactly. Yeah. Okay. What do you think today or in the recent past year has been most overhyped in marketing? I don't want to take any shots at anything or anyone. <laughs> Maybe instead of answering your question, I will say. <laughs> Everybody else I've asked, I've, David, I was waiting for somebody to say that because most people just answer exactly what they dislike the most, but I think you're right. We don't necessarily <laughs> want to pick on it, but go ahead. <laughs> I think what's appropriately hyped is AI, oh but my it's God. definitely the talk of the town. Like oh you can't God. go to 
any marketing event, you can't read any marketing publication without AI being front and center. Or a global board meeting like a week ago. Or a exactly. global board meeting or a CEO, CMO, uh, MMA Summit, event. Exactly. Every, exactly. I think we're all figuring it out. It's definitely a watch this space sort of uh, moment for AI. Okay. Well, listen, my other question was going to be what's most underappreciated. Same thing. I think actually on that, I go back to the basics on that. I think about things like email and out of home, and I don't think anyone's paying attention to the like more fundamental marketing channels and how do you make them better. For every email I get that's good, I get about a thousand bad ones from marketers. And so uh -huh. I think it's underappreciated the extent to which we can use traditional old school channels much, much better. Oh my God, David, spoken like a real economist. So I have always believed that. And here's it. So tell me if this is what it is for you. When I see the other world zigging, it's time to zag. And if you have an economics orientation to the marketplace, you want to borrow an investment orientation. You want to buy around with a market. I still remember when I went to Procter and Gamble. I worked on P&G business for years as a media guy, and this is back. This was in the '80s, way back when. And I recommended uh, radio. And this had not happened for anything else we'd ever done. But I told a very compelling story about how that worked for their business, the way it worked, especially around multicultural. I was at one point the largest Hispanic television buyer in the country. But I recommended radio. I'll never forget the brand manager says, how much more could we really spend behind that? They really got that that was a huge opportunity to drive the business in ways that others just want. I mean, to recommend radio for Procter & Gamble with their beautiful TV ads was heresy back in those days. So very funny. Yeah. I knew radio was underappreciated and therefore was undervalued. It was going to be the deal of the century. I think there's a lot of examples like that. Same with internet. Internet was the same thing in the 90s. Consumers' adoption was so fast. It was underappreciated. Inventory was available everywhere. In fact, you know that was our problem. We had too much inventory for the business. That was it. Same thing happened with mobile too early on. So, yeah, no, I agree. Well, listen, this is excellent. So there we go. Spoken like a couple <laughs> of good economists. David, you're the best. I really appreciate you uh, helping out on the board. And, you know, listen, we're going to go figure out that AI thing together, I think. That's going to be our big opportunity here for the MMA and for Uber and, you know, the project we're trying to work on together with, with you guys and others. So I look forward, but I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again to David Mogerson from Uber for coming on Building Better CMOs. Check the show notes for links to connect with David. And if you want to know more about MMA's work to unlock the power of marketing, please visit MMAglobal.com. Or you can attend any one of our 30 conferences in 15 countries where MMA operates. Or if you want, write to me, greg at MMAglobal.com. Now, thank you so much for listening. Tap the link in the show notes to leave us a review. And if you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to all those places and more at bettercmos.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Building Better CMOs researcher is Zanita Polovska. Artwork is by Jason Chase. And a very special thanks to LaSara Smith for making this all happen. This is Greg Stewart. I'll see you in two weeks.